Like I, I don't have domestic DNA. I don't have a desire to be married. I've had to dedicate a certain amount of my energy consistently to resisting that force. You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast, where we are busting myths and breaking balance. Here's stories from women who are pushing boundaries to navigate the decisions and changes that come with work, womanhood, and winning. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, speaker, decision strategist, and master imbalancepreneur. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second episode in season two of the Disrupting Balance podcast. Thank you for coming back. And I can't wait for you to meet our guest. But before I introduce her, I want to remind you about the Big Myth campaign. It is not too late for you to share your big myth and enter to win. We've already picked our first winner who was mentioned in last week's episode. So you don't want to miss out for your opportunity to share and win. Go to www.disruptingbalance.com slash big dash myth, B-I-G dash M-Y-T-H. Today's guest is a no-nonsense, brave badass turning curiosity into confidence. In this episode, she gets real about the myths around religion, growing up in a small town, and real about white girls in yoga. You've got to have your pencil and paper ready for this because she drops so many gems about the historical and cultural components of yoga that lend itself to current day practices. I know you'll enjoy. Today in the Disrupting Balance guest chair, we have Asia Nelson. She is the founder and owner of Prana Life Yoga. How are you, Asia? I am fabulous. How are you? I am doing well, and I'm so glad that you're here with me today. And we're going to jump right in and get into that first question, which is, what is your story? My general story is this. I am a left-handed white girl from an Alberta town in the Canadian Rockies that had 7,500 people in it. I left home at 17 to work on a missions organization project. It was like um, Doctors Without Borders, except it was done on ships. And I have an MA and two-thirds of a PhD in rhetoric and communications design from the University of Waterloo which is what brought me out to Waterloo, which is where I live now, which is a little town just outside of Toronto in Canada. I worked in Cubicle Nation just long enough to find out that I didn't want to work in Cubicle Nation. So that launched me into entrepreneurship, which led to the beginning of Prana Life Yoga, which I started 14 years ago. And I have been doing ever since. And uh, I started Prana Life Yoga teacher training 10 years ago, and that has become the cornerstone of my business now. It's thrived for 10 years until, of course, COVID came along and wiped out a lot of things in my industry, including that training this year. It's still running, but it's, um, it's taken a deep hit. And that kind of brings us to where we are now. So let's, let's go back because an interesting point you brought up was being 17 years old and going to work on a mission. Uh-huh. And I'm always amazed to hear stories of young people at that age who are willing to commit their time 
to such important work when there's so many other things that can distract you. So let's talk a little bit about why you made that choice. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. So when I was 14, um, this missionary came to my church who was affiliated with uh, Samaritan's Purse. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's Franklin Graham's uh, program. He's Billy Graham's son. Mm -hmm. And um, they were doing missions trips to Thailand and Vietnam. And I think more because, if I'm honest, I was a little girl with big imagination stuck in a very small town. It ignited my curiosity. I had never really been anywhere, um, and I wanted to sort of travel. And I was raised in the church and very active in my church with my community. And there were a handful of other kids my age and a little older that wanted to do it. So um, a couple of the leaders in the church said, okay, well, there's enough kids that are interested. Let's put a group together and go. So we did that and it was just life altering. Like I thought I was just going to get out of my little town and go see parts of the world. And what we did was uh, smuggle medical supplies from Thailand into Vietnam. At that time, that was 1991. Mm -hmm. So Vietnam was in a very different place (laughs) than it is now. Um, And we went and visited, you know, orphanages and we went and visited this one place that housed children that had been abandoned for so long that they couldn't deal with physical contact. And it was just like a really eye-opening, intense experience for a 14-year-old to go through. But it really made me aware that there was just such different experiences outside of my my little small town. So as soon as I could, I finished school at 17. And as soon as I was leaving school, I was like, I know what I want to do. I want to get into that world again. Like I want to help and I want to travel and I want to be exposed to different experiences. And I want to, you know, just get out from the bounds of my little small town, but also immerse myself in what felt like, you know, really important experiences for me to have. So I joined this group called Youth with a Mission or YWAM, and they do this thing called Mercy Ships, which is where they buy old cruise ships and they renovate them to be medical wow. medical ships. And then they take those ships along coasts where there's trouble accessing good health care, right? Either there's war or it's just really poverty stricken. So I walked, worked on those ships for a little while and it was totally eye-opening. And it ended with me leaving the ships and singing on the streets for money in the Canary Islands and that not going very well. <laughs> so I came home and then I owed my parents a little bit of money for sticking around out in the world a little longer. So that brought me back home. Wow. That's amazing. When you talk about being from a small town, hmm. can you recall any particular myths coming out of the small town that you realize were no longer really true to you once you ventured out? As, as a missionary? Yeah. I mean, at this point in my life, you know, 20 some years later, it feels like that whole town was just mythological. <laughs> it was so, it was, there's just so many things that go on in a, in a really small town, you know, like, I mean, 7,500 people, like really small town um, and not really near anything that was any bigger either. So very, very minimal influences. And when I left there, I actually kind of became part of another small community being a missions organization, right? You sort of bond Mm -hmm. with the people you're working with and then supplant yourself somewhere that you don't belong or that you're Mm -hmm. not from. So you end up feeling like that insular community is your community, which was another very small 
community for me. So a lot of those things transferred. Also, I went from a very sort of religious little town to obviously a very religious organization to work with. So a lot of the things that I believed in then transferred into that first experience. Um, but there were lots of myths that came out of that town that I have since had to kind of walk through for myself mm-hmm. and figure out what I was interested in keeping and what I needed to let go of in order to grow in my own life. You know, religion was one of them. I I found my own way sort of out of a a structured religion and into a kind of spirituality. Mm. Um, And I feel like there's lots of the same goals in both of those things, just very different approaches. And so I've made sort of made my peace with that, but that was a, a very difficult process. Like I used to joke when I was kind of leaving Christianity that I was giving my get out of jail free card away, right? Like, <laughs> what if I'm wrong, right? That's that question. But I had a very good relationship with God or with my concept of God. Mm-hmm. And I became a Christian very, very early. So um, I was very literal about it. Like, you know, they, you'd say, you can pray to God and he'll answer you. And I'd be like, oh, okay. So I'd just walk around talking to God and expecting an answer because I thought that was a literal thing that really happened. Yeah. So um, the whole process of moving out of the structure of Christianity towards my own kind of spirituality, I really did do in conversation with my concept of God and felt a lot of peace around that. But not beyond religion, my town was just a holder of all of those small town things. And I was a very, like, I, I don't have domestic DNA. Like, I don't have a desire to be married. I never have. I've never had an instinct to have kids. All I've ever wanted to do is kind of travel and learn. Mm. And, and eventually, once I discovered business, I was like, oh, this is my thing. So... I have always lived within the water, right? Swum within the water of that kind of expectation placed on women that part of the necessary aspect of our narratives has to include that domesticity. Yes, yes. And I think that there is obviously something very core to that in the sense that like if all of us just didn't feel like having babies anymore, our species would be pretty screwed. But so thank goodness, some people feel that calling. But I think it's one of those many things where, you know, when when there might even just be a majority of that, there's this assumption that it needs to be everybody or something's wrong with you if you don't fit into that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I fought against that my whole life. I wouldn't say I've fought against it. I say I've, I've had to dedicate a certain amount of my energy consistently to resisting that force. I think uncovering and understanding the myths that women are inundated with. Um, That's a lifelong process. But one of the things that's kind of always present for women that I don't think is is present for men is like that idea of, oh, just get married and have a man take care of you. And I I knew that I didn't want to get married. And if I did, I certainly didn't want to get married for that reason. (laughs) Um, But I had to, again, devote another section of my energy to kind of consistently resisting that external force of that idea Sometimes when you jump into something without a net, it makes you work harder at it. Yeah. Whereas when you kind of have a, a, that safety net, you sort of want to keep one toe on that boat while you're jumping. And I feel like it actually disadvantages women if we sort of have that, like, maybe I should just get married. Maybe I should have a, a man support me. Maybe I should have mm-hmm. some help that way. Mm-hmm. That it actually has us kind of hedging our bets psychologically rather than fully investing in ourselves. 
And I have felt that over the years, certainly as an entrepreneur, just like having to really consciously say, like, I'm going to bet on myself. Yeah. I'm going to like, see if I can do this first. That's a very like resolute stance. And it's powerful because I absolutely concur with everything you said. What about friends or family or people in your environment when they are aware of this or when you discuss it with them? What tends to be the response? And and if it's something counter to what you believe, how do you deal with that? People who know me know that you're just going to get me. If you're dealing with me, you're going to get me whether you like it or not. I, I don't know if I'm even on the spectrum or something, but I seem to just lack that <laughs> ability. And I, I developed this mantra very early on when I was sort of young and ignorant and didn't know better. And I've kind of held on to it, which is like people either love me or they don't know me well enough yet. And mm-hmm. when I approach a situation like that, where I, I just kind of create a space of like, I want to think that about other people as well, right? I either like you or I just don't really understand you well enough yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that creates an environment where even though I can, I'm, I'm not really that confrontational, but I'm like controversial, I suppose, mm-hmm. because I will mm-hmm. just state things like, I don't want to have kids as a, as a thing. And I don't kind of try and defend myself or, you know, I hedge my, because I really don't feel insecure about that. And if that makes people uncomfortable, I try to hold that space and open for conversation and engagement um, from a place of us just getting to understand each other better. And I guess I've, I've come to a place where I'm like, well, like if you're not going to engage in the conversation then I have other stuff I need to do. Like we don't need to waste our time here, either being in tension or just disagreeing or fighting or creating positions or whatever, all of that kind of negative uh, emotional exchange. I just don't make time for, but if somebody really wants to kind of talk to me about it or in any way, shape or form can kind of create space for me to just be myself, then I'm there and I'm, I'm engaged in it. Yeah. Well, I definitely picked up on that when we first spoke. Part of my role in these discussions is to have women be reflective and in their absolute truth. Thinking about that truth and you standing in it, you said to me when we first talked, you said it was something to the effect of white girls and yoga. And so I was really like, you know, in wanted to engage and understand what that meant. So let's talk about what that is in the space that you're in when it comes to white girls and yoga. Ugh, for us to just sit down with some whiskey and five extra hours, like there's so much to be said about this topic. And I certainly wouldn't claim to um, be the expert on it or the the prominent voice in it. Um, For your listeners, if anybody's really interested in diving into this, I'd recommend starting with a podcast called Yoga is Dead. And it's by two Indian women who talk about this so much more eloquently and from their own personal experience. Than I would, but to give you kind of the Coles notes of my perspective, yeah, like yoga is a very ancient tradition that comes from the Vedic area, which is like roughly sort of India, Pakistan area that has been handed down through the ages to generations of people in that area that very much claim it. And, you know, about a hundred ish, 120 years ago, there were a handful of teachers that, you know, during British colonial rule were sort of cross-pollinating with white people. 
and started kind of emerging with this yogic practice as a, a almost an act of self-defiance or self-definition against the colonial power. Um, the next thing we know, Sting and Madonna make yoga the thing everybody needs to do. Mm-hmm. And you can't mm-hmm. find a person of color in a yoga class for the life of you. You know, 20 years ago, when I got into yoga 20 years ago, I didn't know, I was illiterate in any of these conversations. So I didn't know the history. I didn't know the tensions. Um, I just knew that I learned this practice of yoga that I fell in love with, right? So I just dove in. And what I felt was the right way to engage with this was I'm a researcher and a scholar, um, so I researched the text. I went back to the original texts mm. um, and and studied them and studied with the sort of the most legitimized teachers in that space. And, and I did the work. Like, really, I understood very early that yoga is a personal practice. So I spent tens of thousands of hours on my mat having a personal direct experience with these practices as they were described in the Hatha Yoga Pratipika, as they were described in the Yoga Sutra, as they were described in the Upanishads, I felt like I was doing my work by being as aligned with kind of the original practice of yoga as as I could. And the fact that there were just white people in the class was, you know, it's all the things white people say, like, oh, well, it's just, that's the population of my environment, you know, or like maybe only white people like it. But, you know, it's taken people a while. Like, like I say, I came from a very small town. I definitely came from a very white town. No one was talking about this. And really, it wasn't until I would say the advent of social media giving voice to the unheard before I really felt like I was starting to hear other positions other than my own, the ones that were being reinforced around me. Mm -hmm. In the last few years, I started listening to other voices. And the more I became aware of these conversations, you know, the more I had to kind of process that. I've walked through that over the years and to the point where it was like, do I want to call what I'm teaching yoga? Because there are there's, there's a spectrum, of course, like it's not a uniform voice. There's a spectrum of different positions on this. And some of them that are very traditionalist are like, this is a Hindu practice. It's a religious practice and it needs to be kept within mm-hmm. that Hindu space. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, geez, like, I don't want to be a person who's disrespecting that. But then that means, do I have to leave this practice? Cause like, I really love it and, <laughs> and I do it every day and it's become such a part of my life. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, even up till this very day and the Black Lives Matter movement is really giving so much, um, I mean, the Black community is just giving so much uh, literacy to this conversation to help us all kind of like figure out how we do this thing. So I've been borrowing a lot from that experience as well in my readings um, from the Black community, especially Black women. Like I'm just so happy that Black female voices are coming out because I'm learning so much. And a lot of it translates into this situation as well, as far as like, how do I, as a white woman, what do I do? How do I, how do I get in here or get out of here um, in a way that's useful? So how do I move forward? Well, right now I'm listening and learning and, and trying to do this in cooperation with the community that, that claims it as its own. Um, And I think even those steps are, integral to the process of growth of healing and kind of going to the other side of all of this. So 
I know you've been doing yoga a long time and it's part of who you are and dare I say, even part of your identity. So you had this major injury that occurred as a result of your yoga practice. So let's talk about that injury, what it was and how you worked through this, what the setback was and how you worked through that setback. So in 2011, I uh, was doing something, a fairly benign movement, and my low back uh, was struck with an intense amount of pain. Um, there's a lot of debate and uh, lack of clarity in the world of injury and pain and biomechanics and health science um, around back pain and especially low back pain. So to say this is what happened to my back is actually really hard to do definitively. Mm -hmm. So what I say is I just experienced a lot of pain. It felt like a disc slipped or ruptured and I couldn't move for about 20 minutes. I was on hands and knees in excruciating pain. Um, eventually got myself back onto my feet, but then for the next couple of weeks, even bending forward or more than an inch would cause excruciating pain to shoot through mm -hmm. my back and mm -hmm. down into my legs. I went to my doctor. I was referred to a physiotherapist and the general feedback I got was, oh, every, you know, this happens to most people, like 80% of people have some sort of back issue at some point in their life it'll resolve. And it's true. I, I sort of found the things that I could do and the things that would trigger and I just avoided the triggers. And it resolved within, I'd say, two or three weeks after that. So I thought it was over. Uh, went back to doing the, all the things I usually do, re-injured it, and then went on this journey of just kind of, you know, re-injuring it saying, oh, it must have been this thing that I did. Okay, now I won't do that. And then leaving it. And then a couple months later, re-injuring it and being like, oh, okay, that thing now bothered mm -hmm. it. So I won't do that. Mm -hmm. To the point where I felt like I kind of painted myself into a corner of like, oh my God, like what can I do? Like it seems like everything is re-injuring this thing. And, you know, I just did a, a talk a few weeks ago on pain where I talked about the pain journey. And this is kind of this pivotal point for a lot of people who deal with pain and especially low back pain, where you go from having an injury to being injured. Mm. You go from like a thing that happened that could go away to mm -hmm. a chronic state that you are now dealing with. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's a kind of trauma, right? You become hypervigilant. Um, you, you, you pay way more attention to it. It starts to limit the way that you interact with the world. It changes your perspectives. You rewire neurologically, um, you know, to pay extra attention to that area. And you develop a kind of fragility around that. I wrote, I just wrote him and I said, Hey, I'm starting this yoga teacher training and I'm looking at the movements and I'm wondering, you know, if, if there's, if we should be asking questions about the movements. And he wrote back and he said, what do you need from me? Because I've never had a yoga teacher contact me willing to question the yoga practice. So I was like, well, I'd love you to come teach at my teacher training, but I feel like whatever you would charge me for that, I would swallow my tongue once I heard, because he's ten or $15,000 per workshop. And he just showed up and he gave us half a day. He was just such a supportive person. So when I started going through this injury myself, I contacted him. Um, but going through that injury, man, I'll tell you, like, there's a thing we te teach in yoga called the koshas or what, what yoga describes as layers of being. And it's sort of their way of 
mm, separating distinct aspects of identity, right? And they always talk about like there's energy that flows. That's prana, which is the basis of my business, prana life. There's this prana or energy that can flow between these layers. So, for example, when you have a physical injury, it's very common that it doesn't just affect you on a physical level, right? You, it affects you emotionally. It affects you psychologically. If it's traumatic enough, it might affect you socially. And yoga describes that in terms of just that, that injury penetrating those koshas. So that, this was very true for me, for sure. This injury was physical. It also felt very emotional. It definitely, like you say, uh, struck me on an identity level. And not only did this threaten my ability to just bend over and brush my teeth, it threatened me financially. And, and, you know, all the things that I'd worked so hard for and sacrificed so much to set up for myself. Yeah. Here I was just feeling like, oh my God. And I, and the real crux was like, it seems like I'm in an environment of super healthy, uninjured people. So I'm the outcast. And I just started getting so uncomfortable with going into a classroom teaching. I was teaching the Ashtanga series, which is a very vigorous, very athletic style of yoga. And I, I was just watching these people in this room, just like muscle through this work and thinking, am I injuring them? Like, am I contributing potentially to them hurting themselves? And I just couldn't deal, you know, like yoga's primary sort of MO is ahimsa, like to do no harm. And here I was standing at the front of this room with all these people trusting me. And I was like, I'm unclear about whether this practice might be harming them. So I eventually had to reckon with that. And it was very scary. It was a super dark time. I went through a major depressive disorder for most of that year. At one point, you know, the culmination of a lot of processing led me to this one moment where I was in my room, I was on hands and knees, I was doing these tiny, tiny movements. And I was on my hands and knees doing this thing called bird dog. And I was barely doing it, like barely in it. And I was coming down on myself like, oh my God, is this what you've been reduced to? And, and I just, the yoga practice kicked in and it was like, become detached from this because you're suffering. I, I sort of stopped when I thought of that and kind of sat with it and breathed and let all of the chatter go. I just let it all go. And I got super curious about that movement. And I suddenly recognized that there was like this whole other world in just this simple movement that I was doing, that I had been missing because I was, I was not aware of it. I adopted this mantra of curiosity and then I sort of modified it to the mantra of interesting. And I give that to my um, yoga teachers in training all the time. I say, get rid of all of this chatter, all of this judgment, all of these voices that have just dumped into the back door of your brain and just say to yourself, interesting. And it's always one of those mantras that they come back to me years later and they're still using it and they're still so grateful for it. It sounds like there are obviously some myths in yoga around suffering and silence and just kind of dealing with whatever your body's going through and not being truthful to, you know, the experience. What, what are these myths in yoga? Why are they, what is it and why? People go towards the things they need. So there are a lot of people within the yoga space who just really need that practice. And yeah. what that means is um, a lot of times, especially over the last 15 years to this date, yoga was such an emerging market. So 
15, 20 years ago, when I started teaching, there was almost nothing that looked like a teacher training. There was almost no such thing. You usually just had to study under a guru. And at some point, that guru would say, you know, you're ready to teach. Let me teach you. You'd study with them for a little while. And then they'd say, okay, you're ready to go. So you end up with this whole wave of teachers that were trained in this totally different way by these other teachers who'd really just been kind of figuring it out on their own. And I think it leads to a lot of leadership, quote unquote, in this community that lacks leadership. So I think what I realized when I had my injury and I looked around in the yoga community, it wasn't that they were all healthy, perfect, balanced gurus. It's that they were all silenced, scared, projecting a certain image, wow. invested people who, like me, had had been, you know, blissfully ignorant of any of these challenges. And then when faced with them, something like an injury, didn't know what to do with it and didn't have a safe space for it. So I credit Diane Bruni, who founded Downward Dog Yoga, which was one of the first yoga studios in North America. Um, she came out around that same time with her injury story. And at the time, like Downward Dog was one of the most successful studios in North America. She was leading some of the most successful classes. She had had a television show. So her speaking out was just like incredibly powerful for the yoga community, because yeah. if she could do it, she just not only spoke it for herself, but created a safe space for a lot of people. And the out the flood of just ease and truth and release that came from somebody in the industry speaking up. Um, and it's still going on as far as, you know, people suffering in silence in the community now. But what I've sort of learned is, um, you know, silence can also be empowering in the sense that you have to feel safe. You have to create a sense of safety. So sometimes you need to stay quiet to feel safe. And to sort of figure out what you need to do next. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I always say to people, you know, stay silent if it's safe because, because you're, because it's an internal force. You're choosing to stay safe until you can, you know, kind of get to this place or change this thing or talk to these people or, but if you're staying say, silent because of an external force being pushed on you, then you've got to start doing the work right? You've got to start what I call progressively adapting. <laughs> You've got to just, just like with a physical practice, if you have an injury, you know, you can kind of like baby it for a little while and not move it for a little while until you sort of familiarize yourself with what this means to have this injury. But then you got to get back in there and you got to start getting curious, right? And you got to start progressively adapting that part of your body and you in general to making that injury better or, and, and also integrating that new reality to yourself. Yeah. Oh, you mentioned in our, our previous discussion about how you move some comp or shifted some of the components, the, the rigid components of yoga, the Ashtanga, but it's kind of your own way of adjusting that style for the sake of the injuries and the body and the health and all that. So how has the understanding really informed how you teach now and what you teach? Yeah. So when I got my injury and I went through that process of having to decide whether I was going to be truthful about it, I, I, I did. I eventually did decide that I needed to 
a line, you know, we, that, that sort of popular phrase that we use now, like, are you in alignment with something? Um, I needed to align what I was practicing and learning with what I was teaching at first sort of just introduced a couple of changes and slowly started to shift what I was teaching to be more in alignment with what I was doing to the point where what I was teaching was kind of catching up with where I was. And I could just sort of share what I was learning, like I was Mm -hmm. doing before when I was practicing Ashtanga. And along the way, you know, the fear is as a yoga teacher, oh God, I'm going to change what I'm teaching and everyone's going to leave. And the reality is you're going to change what you're teaching and some people are going to leave. But Mm. a bunch of other people that you didn't appeal to before are going to find you. So if you can weather that storm, you get out on the other side with a bunch of people who are now invested in what you've learned and what you're teaching now. So the same thing has happened with my teacher training. I kept for the next probably about three years, I still primarily taught the Ashtanga sequence um, because it was what I knew and because the changes that I, were make, that I was making to my own practice were not global enough to just sort of toss out that system and put in my system. But amidst the Ashtanga that I was teaching, I was asking different questions um, and I was getting them to think more critically about those postures. And I was introducing some of the changes that I had made, not so much as like, here's what you should teach, but here's what I teach. So now I was doing the work like Diane had done with me. I was doing the work of creating a safe space for them to explore and question and and change what they were doing. And once I saw that that was happening, there was no stopping me. So I came out quite boldly a couple of years ago by getting rid of the Ashtanga sequence as something I taught at all and just introducing what had now become kind of my practice in my systems. Mm-hmm. So there was probably a year or two where I would have a few people in there that were initially a bit miffed because they just sort of heard of me by legend and they sort of knew me as an Ashtanga teacher. And then when they showed up, they were like, what's this shit? You know, but then <laughs> yeah. I sort of like, you know, won them over for the most part, I would win them over because I never said don't practice Ashtanga. I just yeah. said, why are you doing, why are you moving this way? Do you know? Mm-hmm. And what if you do it this way? What happens, right? It became all surrounded by curiosity and getting them to be curious. And my job was to just create the safe space for them to kind of explore that and try it. And it was revolutionary. What or who has been your greatest teacher? <sighs> All my life, I have craved to be surrounded by great teachers. I am tempted to say that my greatest teacher has been yoga, but I think the core component of what I'm thinking about when I say the word yoga is meditation. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's very possible that my greatest teacher has been me, because who am I listening to? I don't really know. I don't know the answer to that. And that's part of my spirituality is to be content with that. But that unknown um, has been an an, uh, amazing teacher because wherever that comes from, it seems to be so connected to me. Uh, Me tapping into my own experience and trusting that has really, is it my intuition? Is it God still talking to me? I don't know. But whatever that voice is in me seems to give me the best advice.
I am Asia Nelson, and I am disrupting balance by turbocharging people's brave life leaps. Thank you for listening to Disrupting Balance. To learn more about how I'm disrupting balance, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Disrupting Balance. You can also check out my website at www.disruptingbalance.com to get podcast updates and news from the Balance Disruptor community about how you can become your very own master in balancepreneur. Talk soon. <laughs>